Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Paul Durant. Uh, We're at Durant Vineyards. It's June 4th, 2019. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, Paul. Uh, We'll start off by asking you, why wine? Uh, It's really uh, why farming. So I think that that is what I always wanted to do growing up. And so I would have farmed probably if I wasn't into wine. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, my folks came out here and really bought this property here on the hill and farmed, you know, hazelnuts, which used to be called filberts and cherries and English walnuts and uh, and then and got into wine kind of through that started planting vineyards over the years. But, uh, so I, my passion has always been the farming side. And where did that passion, do you have an idea where that came from? Why, why farming? Um, you know, I don't know. I think I just really, I find the there's just something really peaceful about it, and I think everybody finds their passion. How they find their passion, um, you just can't always put your finger on it. I just was really lucky to be out, out here and have the opportunity to experience a bunch of different things. I like the seasons. I like the land. Um, I just feel a great connection to that. Um, so it's been, yeah, I'm, I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. Yeah. So before you got into the industry, you, you grew up and you kind of grew up in it. So tell me about kind of your impressions growing up around farming around wine. So I think it was always, I don't think you really appreciate what you have when you're around it all the time because you don't know anything different. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents, I mean, I just remember as a kid, you know, spending a lot of time with the Blosser family, you know, hanging out with them. Uh, there was a farmer on this hill, his name was Ted, Ted Werfs, mm-hmm. him and his wife, Vernie Werfs. Um, we would often end up there for dinner, just kind of by happenstance. And I always just loved being around Ted and kind of hearing about how he farmed on this hill. And we ended up buying a lot of property from them, and as, as did the Blosser family. So, um, yeah, I just think you kind of just come to, it just becomes a little bit second nature. Mm-hmm. So, and I... And I always wanted to do it growing up. I mean, I knew early on what I wanted to do. Something in ag, you know, something along those lines. Uh, but my parents said no. So, you know, I've been gone. I was gone for 15 years doing my own thing um, as a mechanical engineer. And I traveled all over the U.S. Had a bunch of different experiences with that. But I always, always knew I'd come back at some point. So and I'm fortunate enough to do it while my parents are still healthy. And, you know, it's been, I've been back here for nine years and really been able to kind of, uh, my timing was probably spot on because when I stepped in nine years ago, it was just at uh, when things were starting to really ramp in the industry. Mm-hmm. So I've really enjoyed the growth. Mm-hmm. So that's been great. So your parents said no, tell me about that. Well, I think that they, a couple things, you know, A, they, my mom had some experience, like her family, family ranching business and I think it's always a little bit difficult to be under the thumb of your parents and not be your own man or your own woman. Mm-hmm. And I think that they wanted me to know that I could walk away and have a life and a career elsewhere. And then also at the time, I don't think it was big enough to really support a family. You know, it would have been rough. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it is nice knowing in the back of my mind because I do work with I do work with my folks a lot that I could always tell them to pound sand and I could leave <laughs> <laughs> and have a good career somewhere else. <laughs> so once you decided to come back, tell me about what the what that the, the kind of transition was like, and then what your kind of learning curve was like. Um, so you know the learning curve was pretty pretty easy, you know, because I even while I was uh, you know I lived in Oregon and I never really left, so I was still still super involved out here. Mm -hmm. Um, through all the harvest, I'd take time off from my other career to be here, to be present, was really engaged in things that were going on. Um, you know, we also make olive oil here too, so I've, I've made every, every year we run that mill, I've made every vintage of olive oil, you know, since we started it. So I still kind of had my fingers in it. I think the thing that needed to happen was, and it were, my parents had maybe it'd been a little bit of an avocation for them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it became my vocation. Mm -hmm. And so it needed to really grow. And so the learning curve has been how to grow a business in a sustainable way where you can make money and then also have the right people and the right mix of uh, employees, that sort of thing. I think that's the biggest thing about in any organization is you know, having the right team in place because you can't do it all. And I think that's where a lot of wineries struggle mm -hmm. is that they, they're not willing, the owners aren't willing to let go of certain aspects of their business and let really good people run with it. Mm -hmm. And that's been, I think that's, we've done an admirable job of that. Mm -hmm. So you talk about learning to kind of learning to grow in a sustainable way and learning to find a team like that. So did you, when you came on board nine years ago, mm -hmm. was that something you already had envisioned or was that something you kind of learned once you got here? Uh, something I already had, I kind of knew how to do it. Mm -hmm. So I had, I got, had really great training you know, as a mechanical engineer, I, I ran some projects, and then my last stint was in working for a large general contractor, mm -hmm. and I was remote from the home office, so I kind of had my group of guys, and it was about 30 really strong personalities shoved together to build buildings, and um, so I kind of learned how to lead that team, mm -hmm. and uh, and really lead diverse personalities. So um, I think I. I think the one big switch for me, because coming out of construction is male dominated, and that's just the fact, and you come into the wine industry, especially on the hospitality side, it's totally different. Mm -hmm. It's uh, you know like every one of my managers here when I came in, it was, you know, they had come like the, through the nursery industry or out of grocery or um, just a whole different career path. So mm -hmm. I think that that was, um, probably the most, one, one of the interesting switches, but it worked out really well. So what are you looking for for someone when you're, when you're at, asking him to join a team here, or asking him to lead part of your team, or what is it you're looking for? Oh, boy, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think I'm kind of looking for somebody that's a self-starter, and uh, I kind of like eclectic personalities. Yeah, you know, I really believe you know, maybe I'm going down a, a rabbit hole here a little bit, but you know, I want a really diverse customer base, mm -hmm. and and I look out across that lawn at times, and I got families out there. I have, you know, retired people out there. I have it's, you know, multi-ethnic customer base. Um, it's all sorts of orientations, mm -hmm. and I think that that you know, if I want that in my customers, I have to have that in my work in my people that work for me so that's just really important to me sure. yeah sure. yeah 
uh, you're also uh, active in a lot of industry organizations. So tell me about kind of what, what part of the industries you're, you're active in and, and, and why. So I'm on the Willamette Valley Winers Association board. And I think I, I think I was asked to come onto that board because we're small. <laughs> we're a small player and I think we're mainly growers. So I think I represented board diversity in terms of like kind of how our business is set up because you have some big players on that board. Um, and I, but I think the, the board has always been pretty smart about even though maybe I don't pay as many winery dues as the bigger players or t you know, grape taxes, um, you know, they want a broad range of, of industry players there. Um, so I'm on that board. Um, you know, I've been on you know, other boards like Randall's Children's Hospital. I think that's really important to get back into your community just through different different things. Um, you know, and we do a variety of fundraising type stuff too, so. You talked about olive oil earlier, obviously one of the things that makes you guys unique here. Yeah. So tell me why olive oil and, and how that part of the business has grown. Uh, well, I really think the olive oil, I give my parents a lot of credit for that. And my dad was always, he's always been, what's your differentiator? What makes you unique? And I think when they built Red Ridge and put in the nursery, you know, it struggled for a while because people don't come to wine country to buy lavender. You know, they come to drink wine and experience food. So I think that they saw an opening with the olive oil as a real differentiator um, in terms of destination, you know, tourism, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's kind of what started it. And I think my dad was just fascinated with it. And I'm a mechanical engineer and it's all mechanical extraction methods and um, it just fit really well and it's really grown. <laughs> you know, it's turned out to be a pretty, pretty involved business, but um, it's definitely the go-to place for that. And I've learned a lot about how to make really good olive oil and it complements the wine. Mm -hmm. So. Two questions I want to ask as a follow-up to that because you, you are two good points there. I'm curious how you went about learning to make olive oil and how it had that kind of your process has evolved. Um, so I le really learned. So I took a little bit of short course at UC Davis. Mm -hmm. They have it's the Mondavi Center at UC Davis. Um, they have the Olive Center, which is part of the Mondavi. And then um, when we bought that mill, it came with two years of a miller from Rome. Mm -hmm. So he flew out for a couple weeks in 2008 and 2009 and just lived with us and he showed us how to, he told us really how not so much how to run the mill but what really good olive oil tastes like he also kind of showed us how you know kind of how to make the tweaks in the mill to make really good olive oil and he he was just a wealth of information and then over time um, things break and you make mistakes and you just get better and better at it mm -hmm. so and uh, yeah we make good olive oil I mean we got we've really honed our craft mm -hmm. you know and it's a little bit uh, wine, olive oil, there's no olive oil making, you know, there's olive oil millers versus wine making because in wine making you have all these tools. You can add this, you can add that, you can age it, you can do different things with barrels, you know, with olives, it's, uh, you just are, all you have is the oil and all you're doing is trying to extract the oil and not screw it up. So, you know, and trying to have it in balance, but there just aren't that many, you don't have that many levers to pull. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. You talked about them complementing each other, wine and olive oil. Tell me about that, how, how that how that fits for your kind of overall philosophy. Well, I think that there's two aspects to that. You know, th the first is uh, a little bit cultural. Mm -hmm. You know, they're both really ancient, you know, ancient crops. I mean, geez, you go back to 
Jesus Christ. You know, it's like he was, there's the wine and there's also the olive oil. I mean, back in, back of that whole time, I mean, they're both just have so much history, you know, and I think olive oil even more so than wine. Um, so I think that they're re great cultural compliments to each other. I find that really, um, really fascinating. And then also um, one thing, this whole advent of like buy local and like where's your food come from? And you know, we're really an open book about like how we make the oil, where we get the fruit, same thing with how we do, do all our wines. And I think especially in Oregon, with Oregon being kind of the epicenter of that, um, we've got a tremendous amount of support and interest um, from just people in the community, mm -hmm. especially out of this kind of the Northwest. Um, I don't know if you could have pulled this off in another location as well as we have, just because we've had great support from just locals. So the, the actual winemaking is fairly recent to Durant. For a long time it was just grape growing. Just grape growing, yeah. And so 2003, I think we, you know, Dean Fisher with Adia made like a, made 60 cases of wine under our own label. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the start. And then we've just, since we were so uh, focused on growing, we just kind of organically started having winemakers that we were selling grapes to start making a little bit of wine for us under our label. And we grew, you know, we've grown that up until last year to where we're having about five to 6,000 cases made by these, these kind of this army of winemakers that we sell fruit to. Um, but then, yeah, that changed just in 2018. So built the winery. So that's a big step for us. So it's all, all in-house now. It's all in-house. So what's, so how have you kind of prepared for that? And what is, what is the sort of the plan for that now going forward? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> so hopefully, um, you know, we have a little bit more control. Mm -hmm. So, but we will, you know, we have such diverse topography here. We'll still maintain kind of these very small bottlings off designated areas of the vineyard um, but we're always going to be small I mean I don't have any ambitions to be you know if we still kept all our fruit you know we could be a 25,000 case winery and I want us to be right at about 5,000 cases mm -hmm. maybe six and then really sell it I mean I love the idea of putting wine in people's hands and then let them see them walk away with it versus like trying to work through, you know, the classic distribution model. So it's a lot of work and they kind of talked about this, that team part, you need a really good team to make that happen. I can't sell the wine. So, um, but that's kind of how we want to take it. That's, that's the grand plan. You mentioned your kind of your block style where you mm -hmm. don't, you don't blend wines. Tell me about the, the, the reasoning behind that. Uh, well, I think it was, it was something we kind of fell into not by accident, but maybe by happenstance, because we were selling designated vineyard blocks to winemakers and they, well, they didn't have any choice. They didn't have anything to blend it with. So we would get what we sent them, we'd get it back in the bottle. And over time we realized that that was just super distinctive wines. And then as we added more and more blocks and started talking about those, you know, we had people that became really interested in like, man, I really love that wine off the Bishop block. Um, and we've just built a fan base around these vineyard block designated. And I think it gives people a real connection um, to an area of your vineyard and maybe a winemaking style, but then it also highlights what the vintages look like because you're not trying to mask it um, and have vintage to vintage uh, consistency. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the real charm of when you're selling directly as we do or telling a story as much as we're selling the wine. Mm -hmm. 
you mentioned your different topography here. Take me through a little bit about the different parts of your vineyard and, and what makes them unique. So we have uh, kind of three, actually four now, distinct vineyard areas. We, um, I'll start kind of at the bottom. So we have a vineyard area called Southview, uh, which in that comprises about, comprises five distinct vineyard block areas. And I'm sure, as everybody knows, it's below, it's sedimentary soil, so you're in the Missoula flood area. Um, and so that's really uh, a vigorous site and it's really hot. Um, so it's a lot of full sun, so it tends to ripen up a little bit earlier. Um, and so that's, and so it's kind of an interesting block to play with. Really great for whites. Um, and then we have some nice pockets of some red wines or Pinot Noirs to come off of there too. And we have what we call the home vineyard and that comprises about 12 vineyard areas. And that's my parents' original plant per, land purchase was down there. And it's just deep, rich, jory soils uh, with some areas that are a little bit on the shallower side. And then we have a block further up the hill, which is a really cool site. So it ripens really late and it's called Stony Crest and it was all forested and so we cleared it. So again, these are really deep, mm -hmm. you know, just dark, almost like chocolate soils. They're so, so dark red um, and produces just some of our best wines. And then our last purchase was here on the hill, um, was a block we call Mason, which was owned by one of the la longest landowners here on the hill, a guy named Lee Mason. And uh, so we've cleared that and started planting that to the vineyard too, and we'll see what happens there. A lot of diversity to work a lot with. Of, yeah, yeah, which is great. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So you're obviously, in addition to olive oil, you have, you have lodging here on site, you have a nursery, you have hiking. It's kind of a unique business model. So tell me about how these all kind of, all these parts came, to, came together. Um, well, I think you'd like to say it was all a master plan, and we're just in like year 46 of it. <laughs> um, but we're, it's, I think it's a little bit of, uh, again, like I'm the big beneficiary of some of the investments my parents made, and um, I'm grateful for that every day. But I think a lot of it has been, if like where our anchor points are, is the farm. So what I want people to do is have a connection to the farm as much as possible. And so the nursery kind of lends itself to that. Um, I've become really, I think that people in this, because we get a lot of people that travel and uh, people want to have a sense of what's the connection to the land because maybe they don't have it in suburbia or where they live in a more urban setting. And so that's a little bit like these very informal like vineyard tours where people go out and walk and see the vineyard firsthand and see what's going on and a little bit of these walking paths with like some signage that really kind of gives them a sense to identify with it and then hopefully come back and you know my mom and talks about um, when she envisioned this place she wanted to, like a place where you could drive in and get out of your car and maybe walk through the lavender a little bit stand under the wisteria maybe read your book for a minute and then get back to your car and we'd never we wouldn't even necessarily see you. So we're not forcing somebody through a check-in and a check-out or a rope line where we're trying to make the sale. And I think that walking pass a little bit that way too where you know you can have some a sense of that you know this is an authentic place and maybe find a little bit of peace along the way. Hmm. Do you find uh, a certain part of your overall business model that appeals to people more or is it are people coming more for wine are they coming for olives uh it's a little bit of both i mean obviously people come here for wine and you know and then we try to peel them off and sell them a little bit of olive oil um 
but you know we also have people that are just fascinated with the with the oil just in and of itself so it's really hard to suss out if there's a prime driver um you know i i've had you know people from pack you know people from pakistan afghanistan you know lebanon you know here that you know they're not here for the wine because their religion doesn't allow them to drink the wine but they're here for the olives and to see an olive tree and to, to have a really great olive oil kind of takes them back to their cultural mm -hmm. you know heritage too so and those are some really cool moments for me it's fascinating so how do you define your role here at durant how do you see yourself uh as the kind of the, the your role here um I have a lot of hats here, so I still like to do the farming. So if I still spend time on the tractor and I still I run the vineyards with in conjunction with my dad, I'm kind of the I'm kind of the glue. So I kind of knit together, I keep my management team focused. I can drill down into detail if I need to, um, and then I can also let them run with things. Um, I also. I also recognize that there's value in being the face of the brand at times. So I do some marketing stuff and people like to meet the meet the guy who made the olive oil or, you know, shake the hand of the kid who grew up grew up in it and now gets to run it. So I spent some of that. But I, I mean I really I try to keep I just try to keep everybody kinda between the rails mm -hmm. as much as possible. And what's your favorite part? What's your favorite part of being here? Uh, it's a broken record, but I love the farming. I love farming and I honestly in the fall I love the fall so because we have harvest I literally get to run I, I'm we're harvesting into harvest mode for three months you know so 25% of my year is spent in a harvest methodologies because I we do the grapes and then we're making the wine and then shortly after we get the grapes off we have olives coming up here and we will run that mill I've run that mill as late as the 24th of December, and uh, it's exhausting, but it's just, I mean, I can work, I've worked 24-hour shifts up there, I mean, we can just do, I, I love it. My staff thinks I'm nuts, <laughs> um, because I'm just whooping their ass, <laughs> but I have a great time with it, and so, yeah, that's my favorite part, is the... And it's also hard too, because then I check out. Like I'm, I'm really like that kind of keeping the people between the rails. That I kind of take my hands off the steering wheel, and hopefully not fly the 747 into the side of the mountain. So yeah. Com compare the harvest for me. I'm curious. The grape harvest versus the olive harvest. How are they similar? How are they different? Um, well, in the case of you know the the grape harvest is is kind of fast. You know, it's a fast day. You know, you get up in the morning, you get your grapes picked. You're either delivering the fruit to the winery, um, you know, or if they're buying the fruit or we're hauling it down to our winery and that processing starts. Um, the olives are, you know, I buy a lot of olives. So, you know, I'll work with these growers and they'll get their truck loaded, you know, maybe at like two in the morning. And then that truck drives all night to get here. And then so I'm offloading that truck and I have refrigeration here so I'm getting this all is tucked away uh, so that they they don't spoil mm -hmm. and then I start cranking that mill um, you know with the picking of our own olives 
it is so tedious. I mean, it takes, it takes, it's a slow process to pick olives. It's not like the grapes. So it just, that's just a whole different kind of cadence to it. Mm -hmm. It's like the, the frenetic part about the olives is running the mill, you know, versus like the frenetic parts of the grapes, at least for me, is getting the fruit off the vine. Mm -hmm. So they're just different, mm -hmm. yeah. With the success your olives have had, are you surprised someone else in the area hasn't tried to do it as well? Uh, well, I think there's more and more. You know, I think it's really neat. It's a really exciting time uh, for us. You know, we just had our first olive oil field day, and uh, we had close to 100 people show up. You know, for and Oregon State has a research grant now to start doing uh, propagation trials and some cold hardiness evaluation. And so I think with Oregon State putting some actual science behind it, because I mean for for the handful of people that are doing it like me, it's just all anecdotal, like, ah, let's try this, that kind of worked. Well, let's try it again, maybe we didn't do it right. So I think um, those are, so that's really exciting and hopefully more people will grow it. I'd love to have more people close by so I can buy the fruit closer. <laughs> so it's kind of a, not many people think about growing olives in Oregon, that's for sure. You talked earlier about you talked earlier about you growing up in the industry and kind of growing up with some contemporaries uh, like Alex Ocobois or yep. people who are on the industry now. So, what does it mean to you and and to them to be like second generation Oregon wine? And, and what is it you're hoping to to kind of take from the first and, and move forward? Um, you know, I think it's interesting, and I'm sure it's a common theme through every one of these interviews is that collaboration thing, and uh, people talk about that a lot. Um, but it's the real deal. And I think it deserves to be talked about because it was, it did, it is what happened and it's still kind of what happens. I think like in instances like with Alex Blosser and Jesse Lang, um, you know, those, we kind of have a, it's almost like an unspoken understanding. It's like, man, A, it's hard to work in a family business. And then you're trying to, you're, also trying to grow grapes that that's hard i mean there's a lot of factors that say second generation shouldn't happen <laughs> um but i think given the right right circumstances and the right belief in it it works so i think those are those are some real commonalities um you know and then kind of that other piece the, the other big takeaways is like people that i get to work with that don't have a vineyard because they came to the game late you can't, there's no way you could buy ground up here now if you're just starting out. Um, so I, I really value working with some of these guys that don't have a state fruit and they just want to, they're so grateful to get the grapes and they just want to make great wine mm -hmm. and they know they're not going to get rich, but they're going to have a great life and uh, they're going to work really hard. So I, I like that, that other aspect of it too. That's a great point of collaboration where, you know, you are really part of you're not vertically they're not vertically integrated and so you get to be kind of the wind beneath their wings so to speak yeah. and uh i just that's a really big that's a really a neat piece for me and my dad gives me a hard time you know we we could sell most of our fruit to just a handful of guys a handful of grower or wineries but i like to sell a ton here a ton there uh, so we sell to i think we have like 14 directions we go with the fruit and some people are taking a couple tons and some people are taking you know 80 tons, mm -hmm. but I like working with those little guys too. And they're just as passionate about their two tons as the guy who's getting 80, sometimes <laughs> sure. more so, yeah. You talk about that collaboration and you're not wrong, that's a pretty common theme across right. your interviews. I'm curious with the 
rapid growth and with the people who are not less vertically integrated. Is that changing? I think it's a risk. Yeah, I definitely think it's uh, it has to be tended to. You know, how, how do you tend to it? Well, I think it's a little bit of like doing. Um, like so, sometimes being on this on these boards, mm -hmm. you know, being involved, I think li listening to what's happening. Um, I think some of these bigger players that have come in, they should they they should be commended for how how well they've integrated. They've mm -hmm. been really respectful. Um, but I think it, it. I think with anything like when the industry gets as big as it is, it starts to. It starts to, you can see see where there's kind of the stress points, mm -hmm. you know, and that's just inevitable in anything, mm -hmm. in any sort of maturing industry. So what do you see then as you look forward in the industry? Uh, what are you looking forward to? What are you hoping for? And then what are your, what are your concerns as you look forward as the industry grows? Um, well, I'm looking forward to, like, personally, I just want to keep making really great piano art. And I think we're, that is really fun for me and I, I think we're making some of the best wines we've made. I mean, so that's great. Um, I really look forward to continuing to innovate in the vineyard and do, you know, do those sorts of things. You know, but, you know, then, it, but, and then the things that I worry about is, you know, just on the farming side of it, it's like, man, I gotta sell my grapes. And that's a big book of my business is selling grapes. And there's more grapes being planted all the time. So it's like, I want to see the industry grow because it needs to take the grapes. <laughs> um, but it, it, like anything, it'll go through a cycle. And we've been on a nice cycle with um, pretty good demand, but it's going to go down sometimes. I just want to be ready. <laughs> nice to have the olive oil as a backup. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, so. We're gonna take you back a little bit. Um, curious, we talked we talked a couple times about growing up in the industry. Do you have any like favorite childhood memories growing up in the industry or moments that stand out to you? Oh, I have great. I think it's probably yeah. You know, I have great memories of harvest. Mm -hmm. You know, picking, and uh, I remember picking in the rain. It seemed like it was cold. I mean, it hasn't been cold up here for for many harvests. You know, but I remember being cold and wet and. I have this great affinity for Chardonnay. <laughs> so I, Chardonnay for me is like your grandmother's chocolate chip cookies. Because I like taste Chardonnay grapes and it instantly takes me back to my childhood. And I, that's just something I just, I love picking Chardonnay because they filled my bucket really fast because <laughs> they're big. And, uh, but I just remember, and it's such a distinctive flavor for me. I don't think, there's not a time when I don't, like in the fall where I'm out sampling fruit that I'm not thinking about growing up. Mm -hmm. um, so those, for whatever reason, Chardonnay is one of my best memories. And then my dad and I, growing up, we drove, he and I drove every one of these posts in the vineyard. Um, and I don't know how I didn't kill him or he didn't kill me. Because <laughs> I ran the tractor and he ran the, he, he ran the post pounder and I don't, I don't know how we did that. It was crazy. My parents worked really hard. And as a consequence, so did my sister and I. <laughs> uh, you mentioned new winery. Uh, yeah. uh, what, uh, what do you, we talked a little bit about the kind of the future there, but what are you hoping uh, down the road that will bring to Duran? What are you hoping to, as you look down the road for your brand five, 10 years down the future? Well, I think right. winemaking is all about storytelling. So I think it's the kind of the last piece of really being able to tell the story and about 
you know, because we can talk, I can talk all day long about harvests and what the weather was like in 2000, you know, three versus 2013 or back when I was a kid. Um, so I've got that we have, but the, but there's always been something where we then hand these scrapes off to a winemaker that's remote that we don't, we kind of lose the story a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really excited that we can, you know, I was able to taste these wines and work with our winemaker all the way through. And, you know, the other day we sat, sat in this room right here and, uh, tasted through barrels and we like did our like everybody did their best blend and then we shared our notes that for me is new mm -hmm. and uh is really exciting to get to do that and so that'll just broaden our ability to connect with customers over that too mm -hmm. so yeah when we interviewed your parents your your dad mentioned his refocusing rather than retirement yes he also mentioned some upcoming projects so if you're at liberty to divulge i'm curious what you have what you have on the on the he said five at least five years worth of projects so i'm curious what you're working on Oh, geez. I don't know what's on his list. <laughs> um, so this year we kind of took a year off from projects, but my dad is a great projects guy and he loves to build. And he's a testament to, you know, bodies in motion tend to stay in motion. So, and his motion is building. So we have uh, olive, we need to expand our olive facility. Um, so we need a bottling room and a warehouse for that, more production space. We, you know, we, bottle about 25,000 liters of olive oil. It's a lot, you know, any, you know, we're bottling tens of thousands of bottles every, every quarter. So, uh, so that's going to get expanded. We're going to continue to plant more vineyard. I'm continuing to work on more olives. Um, yeah, so there's just a litany of projects. <laughs> All right. You guys have any questions? all okay. the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything I should have asked or that uh, we didn't talk about that we should have? I don't think so. No, I think it's great. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much and thank you for setting up with your parents as well. This oh, yeah, I know. Geez, it's been on. <laughs> it's been, I think, so. was it Stephanie Hoffman? Yeah. Who's the, yeah. yeah, she has been on my case about it. <laughs> yeah, you guys on that. And we, and we did, and we thank you for that. So yeah. thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank it's you. always good, I think. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.